so Julia was a, a foster daughter of me and my family um, for about four months. She was in our home and she arrived at our home after um, she's from Honduras and her and her mom Lupe and stepdad Carlos were part of a, a group of people um, who had paid a smuggler to bring them up from Honduras and to the border um, of the U.S. and, and, and Mexico. Um, and in the process, they, they rode uh, quite a bit in the back of a, a truck, a tractor trailer, um, and dealt with a lot of horrible things along the way. So when she, by the time she entered the United States, she entered as uh, officially as an unaccompanied minor, um, which, you know, is kind of deceiving because she wasn't actually unaccompanied, but that's, you know, that's what they label um, kids who come across without, without family members, even though, even after they have taken those family members away. Gina Thomas works tirelessly, advocating for families who've been separated at the border. She wrote a fantastic book called Separated by the Border, a birth mother, a foster mother, and a migrant child's 3,000-mile journey. And in this conversation with Gina, it was really, really fascinating to learn about the policy change that's needed and about the families who are still being separated at the border despite the zero tolerance policy being overturned. So take a listen to this conversation. I think it's a really important one during this season in our world. Find out what is still happening at the border and discover what we can do about it. And then go out and buy Gina's book, Separated by the Border by Gina Thomas. Hey, Gina, welcome to This Good Word. I am so thrilled to be talking to you today. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Well, it took a while for us to get to get going on this, <laughs> and I'm going to take total blame, but I'll also somewhat blame the several global crises that we're facing these days. You know, I, I'll yeah, take most of the blame, but, but I'll share. There's a lot going blame. on. There is. Yeah. Um, well, so maybe first question, Gina, just in terms of your background, like where did you grow up? What were some of the things that influenced you as maybe a young adult that got you going into the work that you're doing now? Yeah, um, I grew up in upstate New York. Um, my mom is Italian, and so I grew up around my extended Italian family. Um, and, and I would say that the, probably the earliest influence into this type of work was as my great aunt. Um, I actually talked to her yesterday and she, she noticed that I was doing some protesting and she said, keep up the good work. And she's oh, 85 great. years old now. Yes. And she, uh, she's constantly uh, on the front line of a lot of this kind of stuff. She runs a, a homeless shelter in Rochester, New York, and she's a Catholic nun. Um, and she has often, uh, been thrown in jail. Um, and so I grew up with these stories, right. That she had of, of just, you know, fighting for the poor and fighting for the marginalized and, um, and, and even their own story of coming to the United States and, and being the poor and being the marginalized, um, as an Italian immigrant. So, um, so I would say that that really has influenced, uh, the trajectory of my life. Um, and then, of course, I also grew up in evangelical culture and uh, as a Christian. And so even though I had, you know, Italian family and the Catholic side of that, um, I would go to mass on uh, on Christmas and Easter with the rest of the family. But my family 
uh, my immediate family were evangelicals. And so, um, it's, it, it's interesting, you know, now looking back on, um, kind of the merge of those two faiths kind of joined. Um, and you know, a lot of people think that they're, they're the same faith ultimately, but, um, but in the evangelical world, we kind of grow up learning that Catholic faith is not the same. Um, and so now kind of looking back and, and just seeing the blind spots that I had of, of not appreciating, you know, the Catholic influence that was in my life at the time. Yeah. Um, I'm starting to regain that again. So. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. One of my good friends just converted to Catholicism. And oh, yeah? so I've been sort of following that train for a while. And I think it's beautiful. And I remember yeah. too, I, I grew up evangelical as well, Gina. And I remember implicitly, I don't think explicitly, but certainly implicitly uh, being taught that they weren't even Christians. You know, yep. I mean, that yep. far, you know, I yep. had a picture yep. that every Catholic was you know, on the front stoop of the, of the cathedral smoking cigarettes and, you know, <laughs> they were just complete fakes, you know, cause they did their, yep. their written out prayers. And, and of course we were way better than that. Um, geez, <laughs> just so embarrassing. How isn't dare it? you write it's out so your embarrassing. <laughs> Yeah, it is. It yeah, is. Thank it's God that agree. there, there is yeah. widening perspectives that we get, you know, mm -hmm. we get mm -hmm. that we yeah. met with, but but I think it's Amen. a pretty interesting thing too that that I think that Catholicism and evangelicalism, if if they can shake hands, they have some good things to offer each other. I think they do. They do. I agree. Yeah. Well, tell us. I kind of jumped in to why you do the work that you do without asking you what is the work that you do. So explain the work that you do, Gina. Yeah. So, um, so currently I'm doing some advocacy work, um, for, um, family separation, uh, yeah. and, and did it about two years ago when this was all, um, you know, at the forefront of all of our, uh, American consciousness. Um, but, uh, family separation is, is a really big thing, um, for me and, and, trying really hard to, to push back against that. Um, at the time that, that I wrote the book, we were foster parents. So that was another kind of form of, uh, active engagement in our faith, I think. Um, and then currently I work at a nonprofit, um, that does poverty alleviation. So it's kind of from a, def uh, a bunch of different aspects in different ways. Um, and then, you know, even even tonight, uh, showing up at city council to uh, to talk to them about what's happening in our nation. Um, and so it's um, I think mostly my advocacy comes through my writing. Um, yeah. But lately I've been I've been doing a little bit more than than just that. So um, because I think, you know, the times are calling for it. So, yeah. Well, I, I agree. I agree that we are all being sort of asked to expand beyond our natural, um, yeah. maybe comfort zones of ways in which we typically advocate. But so I, I agree with that. And it's uncomfortable. I mean, it's good, but it's I'm finding yeah. it personally stretching yes. in an uncomfortable way. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, I saw I, I saw on Twitter just this morning that you are addressing city council and so what is the Christian response? Um, to the murder of George Floyd and as it relates to Black Lives Matter, um, as you, I'm just curious, as you're preparing for that, what are you, what are you thinking about saying? Yes. The, so I was just writing this and when you were talking about, you know, it being uncomfortable, I'm yeah. reading, I'm, you know, reading through this and I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm so 
scared to even say to to even address right and and to say this um not scared and like uh i'm not going to do it but just it, it is it's unnerving yeah um but i i think i'm really going to focus on this idea of offense and how um how offense can actually be a gift and what i want to talk to them about is especially the white council leaders because we have um, we have some black council leaders and we have, um, two women and then, um, yeah, black and white on mm-hmm. our council. Um, and so I, I want to direct, you know, my, my talk specifically to the white council leaders and, um, and, and want to just kind of ask them to, to have a posture of humility, um, yeah. and to recognize that the being offended right now can actually turn into a gift if we let it, mm-hmm. um, and then one of the biggest things I'm asking them for is uh, a lot of the the movement here in town is asking for them to reform, you know, policies, which I am totally for. Um, but one thing I ask them to is to pay attention to what what's not there. Right. Mm-hmm. So to scrutinize what policies are there, but also look at what's not there and what needs to be there, because I think uh, a big portion of the racism that continues and perpetuates in this country happens because um, we're not paying attention to to the ways in which we need to be intentional because racism is in the air that we breathe. It's the right. very foundation that this nation was built on. Um, and so if we're not intentional, um, it's going to happen whether we, you know, try to make it happen or don't. Um, so, yeah. Well, right. And, and I think policy change and policy reform and um, noticing, gosh, I, and I, I agree with you. It's so uncomfortable to sort of, call ourselves as you know white people to be Mm -hmm. uncomfortable to to linger in that being uncomfortable and to be offended and be defensive but not you know to to continue with a posture of humble learning um boy absolutely yeah it's just well i'm i'm glad that you're doing that work tonight and i'll be thinking about you that is thank you yeah oh that's so good that's so good (laughs) Well, you did. You wrote a book called Separated by the Border, a birth mother, a foster mother, and a migrant child's 3,000-mile journey. And I was wondering, you know, without giving away the whole book, obviously, could you tell us the story of Julia and Lupe and Carlos? Um, Whatever you want to say about that, I think is just so compelling as it relates to why you care about this so much and really what is actually happening. And we'll get to later... You know, we think about this as a 2018 issue, but as you're going to get to later, it's still happening, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, so, um, so Julia was um, a foster daughter of me and my family um, for about four months. She was in our home, and she arrived at our home after. Um, she's from Honduras and her and her mom, Lupe and stepdad, Carlos were part of a a group of people, um, who had paid a smuggler to bring them up from Honduras and to the border, um, of the U S and, and, and Mexico. Um, and in the process, they, they rode, uh, quite a bit in the back of a, a truck, a tractor trailer, um, and dealt with a lot of horrible things along the way. Um, when they arrived at the border, um, the mother was held as a hostage against her will, and she was separated from um, the from her um, from her stepdad. Then, after being separated from her mom, um, her stepdad and her made it across uh, to the U.S. side. And then, because zero tolerance was happening at the time, 
um, the two of them were then separated. Um, the government separated Carlos from, from Julia. So when she, by the time she entered the United States, she entered as uh, officially as an unaccompanied minor, um, which, you know, is kind of deceiving because she wasn't actually unaccompanied, but right. that's, you know, that's what they label um, kids who come across without, without family members, even though, even after they have taken those family members away. Mm. Um, and so she ended up, um, once a child comes across as an unaccompanied minor, they then uh, are placed into the Office of Refugee Resettlement, which is no longer a part of the Department of Homeland Security. Um, and, and and so through Office of Refugee Resettlement, she was then resettled with um, her stepdad's sister, who lived in North Carolina, where I lived at the time. Um, she was neglected in that home, and that neglect uh, was public, and so a neighbor had called. And the police came and got her and then placed her into uh, social services, which landed her with us. Um, my husband and I both speak Spanish. We lived in Mexico for about four and a half years as missionaries there. And so we both speak Spanish. And um, and she, when she arrived in the office, um, she, she didn't speak any English. Um, so they knew that we spoke Spanish and they thought that this was just going to be a weekend thing. Mm-hmm. Um but then it ended up being a lot longer, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, which all those details are, you know, in the book. But um, so, uh, yeah, so we just thought it would be for a weekend and and it turned into being uh, a whole situation in which we learned um, basically how to fight for her right to get back to her, her mom. Um, and so at the end of about four months in our home, eight months total from being separated from her mom, um, she got to return. We got to go with her. Uh, to Honduras and and see the family reunite uh, in Honduras because the mom had escaped from the smugglers mm. um, and made it back to her home in Honduras. Um, and so, yeah, this this story, you know, just kind of thinking like if this were to happen to one person, like that's awful. Um, but then when you start digging into you know, the history of what happens at the border, you realize that this is, again, one of those scenarios in which it's a systemic issue, not just an individual issue. And so that's really why I'm fighting against it. And how many children, I mean, I know it's ongoing, but I saw a stat in yeah. one of the YouTube videos that you put out, that maybe maybe it was just in 2018, but how many kids were separated from from their parents at the border? Yeah. So, um, so the family separation, the, the zero tolerance policy that we thought, you know, was just happening, um, cause it was officially announced in April of 2018 and then ended by the end of June. So June 20th of right. 2018. Right. Um, but we found, we found out later that it was actually happening, um, uh, from June of 2017. Okay. So, so yeah. So, um, the, the number that we know of at this point in time is 2,737 children. Um, but that number could be different because it's really challenging to find all the right numbers right. Um, from this administration. <laughs> um, right. So, um, so yeah, so that's, that's the number that we know of. Um, but that, that was supposed to end right June 20th, but now I'm seeing different news articles saying that the family separation had actually continued to happen, just not on a wide scale, uh, wide scale, um, like it did under zero tolerance. And so, um, you know, it's something that 
at different points in time they, they'll do and they'll say it's for a certain reason when maybe it's not. Right. Um, yeah. Gina, how did zero tolerance as a policy end? Like what was the, what was the process behind that? So um, there's a couple of different things that happened. Um, there were a couple of different campaigns that were going on at the time um, around uh, beginning of June, I believe. Uh, one of those campaigns was a group of almost 3,000 or maybe more than 3,000 evangelical Christian women who were doing this campaign called Not Without My Child. Mm. Um, and we were posting photos of ourselves with our kids and we were like, you know, tweeting at the different um, authorities at, in power at the time and telling them that this is not okay. Uh, it, additionally, there were lots of nonprofit organizations that were doing, you know, very similar work. Um, and and collectively, I think the the United States conscious was was very much like this is ridiculous. Yeah. This is this is against, you know, human rights. And even the UN said that it was government sanctioned uh, child abuse. Mm -hmm. um, but um, but really, it took a judge um, court ordering that the that the um, the administration stopped doing it for it to stop. And then, of course, there was this whole um, this whole performance of an executive order that was signed after the judge said, you can't do this anymore. So then Trump signed an executive order to to stop it. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> a little gamesmanship. As if it was that's his right. idea, um, but really that's it was right. a court order. Yeah, that's yeah. unfortunate. Yeah. Misleading. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, so many more questions, but I, I want to get super practical for a second. If someone's sure. listening right now and they're like, oh my gosh, I need to know more about this. I need to dive into this because this is breaking my heart. Certainly, yeah. I would direct people to your book, Separated by the Border, Gina Thomas. Um, but what are other ways to get informed on what is happening and how to get involved? Yeah. So, um, there's a, there's a couple of different nonprofit organizations that are doing a lot of, of really important work. Um, I would say kind is a big one. It's K I N D it's kids in need of defense. Um, they do a lot of work on specifically unaccompanied minors um, but they also have have put out a lot of different letters um, in regards to family separation. Um, some of the organizations that have worked with them, Bethany Children's Services, um, uh, Lutheran Services, uh, the, the U.S. Um, Catholic Bishops, um, there's a couple of different ones. I think I have some some resources listed on my website that talk through some of this stuff. But there's there's quite a bit of organizations that have been doing this work for a long time. Um, a lot of Catholic, uh, Catholic ministries, um, specifically at the border that are doing a lot of really great work. Um, but yeah, I'd, I'd be happy to point anybody in the direction that they need to go. Uh, they can find me on Twitter and I'm pretty much respond right away. So <laughs> yeah, you are in a wonderful way that I don't even, I don't even know how you st like keep going. <laughs> You're very active on Twitter. It's very cool. I need to, I found that I need to dive in deep and then I need to like get out of the pool for a few days. That's, that's how I stay sane. On <laughs> totally Twitter. get that. Um, Absolutely. I don't know if that's right or not right, but that's just how I need to stay sane. But, um, okay. So let's talk a little bit about how ICE deportation also leads to family separation. We've talked about the zero tolerance policy. 
but mm -hmm. ice deportation um, results in some of the same same results, correct? It does, yeah. And I I don't know a ton about that. I didn't have to delve into that um, in my in the book itself, but I have heard I was able to go um, on a trip to the border and visited a detention facility um, in McAllen, Texas, and talked to different women there. Uh, immigrant women who were, who were being held there. And, um, and this is really like the family separation that continues, right? It's, it's, it's not necessarily this one time moment or, or event, but it, it continues and happens constantly and has happened um, for decades. And um, there's a, there's a very good book uh, in the country we love. I think it's what it's called by um, Diana. I'm not sure her last name, but she's a famous actress. And when she was 13, her parents were taken from her and she, they were deported. Um, and, uh, so this, this stuff happens quite a bit. Um, I remember talking to a woman who, um, who her, her girls, um, one was eight and one was 13, I believe at the time. And they, um, they were, they were taken away. She was taken away. They were left in the home by themselves. Mm. Um, and then the father came home from work and realized that her, you know, his wife had been taken. Right. Um, and, and then, you know, the, the girls are now suffering because they're constantly worried that their dad's going to get taken away from them in the same way their mom was. Yeah. And so, yeah. Now, so when you've encountered people who maybe are just learning about some of these practices and they have some, some, you know, some questions like, you know, like what are some of the common misperceptions of people that are crossing the border? Like they're going to take our jobs and you know, that kind of stuff. Like what, what, what relearning do you have to help walk people through in terms of, um, you know, someone that's making the decision to come into the United States, why they're doing yeah. that. And does that make sense? Does that question make sense? Yeah, yeah definitely. Um, you know, in, in Lupe's case, um, the mom of the girl that I was a foster mom to, um, it was really a difficult decision to make. And it was an economic decision in the end. Um, her grandfather, who she had taken care of um, since the time that she was 13, um, was struggling and, and needed needed medicine, and the medicine that he needed was constantly draining their finances as a as a family. Yeah. Um, and so she had she had done a couple of different things where she found a job that was like two hours away, and she would send money home all the time, and because it was a better job than what what she could get where she lived. Um, and then that, of course, is is its own family separation, right? Right. Um, and so after a while. Uh, that was exhausting. Um, and so she came back trying to find work and, um, it's just, it's not, you know, there, there's not a ton of job opportunities for her. Um, and so for her, it was an economic decision. Um, but it was a hard decision to make and not one that she made lightly. Um, there were several different things that happened along, um, her route to try to, to, to protect her children, um, both her boys that were staying back and her little girl that came with her. Um, and I think in a lot of other cases, uh, whether it's um, economic or actual life-threatening issues, um, it really is a tough decision. Nobody wants to leave their home and their culture, um, the place that they find, you know, community. It's not something that they do 
just like, oh, I'm just going to go to the United States and, you know, have a blast and make a bunch of money. Right. Um, It's never that. It's often always a decision to be away from family. And it's often always a decision that that feels like life or death. Um, And in in a lot of cases, it is life or death uh, when it comes to asylum seeking, um, really actually seeking protection from domestic violence or from gang violence, um, which is happening quite a bit in Central America. And are people granted like refugee status easily or is that, you know, because there's a difference between immigration and and being a refugee because you're fleeing from violence and there's five criteria or something like right. that. But how, um, you know, how I'm not asking this right, but how easy or how hard is it to claim refugee status when you're entering the U.S.? Yeah, so that is a, it's quite an extensive process. Um, It's very challenging to do. Um, And essentially, it's legal for any, um, any immigrant to present themselves at a port of port of entry, um, and claim asylum, which then gives them kind of the path, you know, to, Mm -hmm. to get to that refugee status. Um, But in order to become a refugee, it's quite a, it's quite a process. There's a lot of, um, you know, making sure that, that you're not a threat, um, mm-hmm. making sure that you actually were in danger. Um, and unfortunately, under this administration, that um, cap has gone down significantly. So every year, the administration determines how many refugees they will allow um, into the U.S. And and that was significantly reduced um, when Trump came into to office. And so it's been a very, very challenging road for a lot of people who are trying to find actual safe haven um, and, and leaving life threatening places to actually get to that point of being a refugee. You know, when I read that it was basically the president's prerogative year by year to set the limit period, you know, I mean, Uh I, I I remember being so shocked by that, you know, like that, 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 that a country that was founded on, on the idea that we would be open and and be a beacon of light to those who are hopeless could could be governed by such a cavalier policy um i remember mm-hmm. being shocked by mm-hmm. that when i when i heard that um it, can that policy be changed well, that's know? a good question um i don't i don't know but i i totally agree with you it's really amazing how much power uh, one person can have in regards to the lives of so many people. Um, I'm, I'm going to look that up because that's a very interesting question. Well, we, we were doing some work with our church with some f- folks that work in uh, refugee resettlement here in the Twin Cities in Minneapolis, St. Paul. And they were the ones that, that told me for the, you know, for the first time uh, that, yeah, you know, the cap goes way down and, and then, um, so what they have to work with obviously goes way, way down. And, you know, some people, not that this is the biggest issue, but you know, you lose your jobs as a nonprofit, yeah. so those jobs go away. And again, that's not the biggest deal in this regard, I know, but it's also right. an unintended, you know, consequence of bad policy that yeah. we have people that are not making much money anyway, doing really, really good humanitarian work losing their yep. jobs again because of a cavalier policy uh, yeah. which which is just it I, it's maddening to me but 
It is. Um, I agree. Yeah. So talk a little bit, Gina, about what you know that is, again, we're beyond the zero tolerance policy. That's officially done. But I guess, is it? Is it really done? What are you seeing <laughs> now, you know, in terms right. of what's happening at the border? Yeah. So currently, um, there's a couple of things happening. One of them is that um, basically under the guise of COVID, um, and so oh, basically yeah. saying like, this is a health issue, a lot of unaccompanied minors are being turned away immediately at the border. Wow. And what what that means is that they are either being returned to the streets of Mexico or returned to their country. Um, without their parents, often, though, right? Yep. Yeah, without their, their parents, parents are detained. Without, uh-huh. Any safety. Um, and so these are the kids that have arrived um, actually without any parents to mm -hmm. begin with. Okay. Okay. So, so their parents are maybe back in their home countries or maybe they don't have parents. Um, and so they arrive and instead of be, being given safety protocols, which is what typically happens, um, and, and to make sure that they're not, you know, in life threatening situations, um, they are immediately being turned away. And so typically those kids would go through the same process as Julia did and, and go to the Office of Refugee Resettlement and then be resettled. Um, <coughs> but currently they're just being turned away. And unfortunately, that makes them um, very high risk of being trafficked, uh, being assaulted, um, being raped, being killed. Um, in some cases, there are some uh, international um, NGOs that are working on the grounds in Mexico to try to keep them safe um, before wow. someone else gets to them that, that doesn't have good intentions. So right. if yeah. you're a child trafficker, then there's right. this, you know, uh, yeah. Ugh. So that's, um, that's a huge thing that, that really is going against, uh, some of our own policies. Yeah. Um, and, and the other thing is, that's happening is that, um, families are currently being given a decision families who are in detention are given a decision to either stay with their children and be locked up um, or let their children leave. And then the parents alone stay locked up um, in the detention facility. And, um, and so this, this binary option is what it's called um, is again being played out because they did this before um, and it's happening again right now in the idea that, see, the thing is there's this, there's this agreement called the Flores agreement which doesn't allow children to be detained longer than 20 days. Okay. Um, and so if a family comes into a detainee camp, um, it should be that within 20 days they're out so that the child is not in that camp. Does that make sense? Yep. yep. Because of that policy. So what they're trying to do is to keep the parents detained and then separate them from the children. And unfortunately they're, they're given horrible. Um, sometimes they're, they're, sometimes those forms are not being translated to the person's language. And sometimes, you know, when they are, they might say something like, well, you can either be with your kid um, and stay in jail forever, you know, or whatever they say. Um, or, you know, you can let your kid go. So that at least, you know, that your kid is free. Mm. Um, and so there's a lot of just like, really easy ways to manipulate people into signing things that they don't necessarily know what they're signing. And that's what we saw with the zero tolerance policy 
is that so many um, parents were signing things that they didn't know that they were signing. Right. They didn't know their kid was going to go into foster care. Um, and so, yeah, it's just, it's just a lot of, a lot of tragic um, and very inhumane policies that are being played out right now at the border. You talk yeah. about this phrase, you have this phrase, choose life that I really am intrigued by and inspired by. Talk about what's behind that, what you mean by that. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I really fully believe that as Christians, we are, um, we are called to fight for the dignity and the life of every human being. Um, and, and so sadly and unfortunately, most people in my, my um, you know, white evangelical camp We'll do that very passionately when it comes to abortion, but not do it passionately when it comes to so many other aspects, such as immigration and, and racial justice. Um, and and we like we are mandated to choose life, right? No. And we are mandated to um, to seek the justice and the peace of our communities. And and part of that really is um, recognizing where um, where the opposite of that is happening. Um, within our borders and, and, and on our border and even within our own communities. And so choosing life really is, um, it's a robust call. It's not just anti-abortion. It's, uh, it's a lot bigger than that. And so I think it's important for us to remember that and to pay attention. I'm so glad you said that so eloquently. And I think it is probably something maybe you get in trouble for saying, I wonder if you do. <laughs> um, I hope you don't, but I wonder if you do and not in trouble, but like, you know, because you're going to raise people's hackles and right. maybe even uh, get people thinking and get people curious about what it means to be pro-life across yeah. the board. And I do think that's one of the most challenging questions of our time yeah. um, for evangelicals, especially. I mean, I don't consider myself one anymore, yeah. but having said that, it still is a, is a very important question we all need to be asking. Um, yeah. And um, otherwise it, you know, if it's too one-sided, then it just feels really, really political and not, not much about actual life advocacy. I agree. Feels like a party and not life. And I think that's a challenge. I think that's a challenge. And I'm so glad that you're doing so much work for that. I mean, and I'm curious, do you, <laughs> I, I, I joked, I, I really didn't joke about you getting in trouble, but do you get flack for pointing that out? I do. I think, uh, um, you know, it, I think I've said it so much lately now that people are just like, oh, there she goes again, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I do. I, I get flack. But I think that there's, there are quite a few more evangelicals saying this now. Yeah. Um, yep. And not that I was the first, like I've joined the chorus of those who have always been saying it. Um, but it is, it is a very large weakness in our, in our faith tradition and, and one that's really, you know, it, it, it's a negative effect, not only on, uh, all of those who are, whose lives are not being fought for, but it's, it's negative on our, our, our part as well and ourselves and our churches. And, you know, the, the lack of, of robust theology that we have around this is really hurting all of us. Um, and, and I hope that we can realize that. I hope so too. And it, for me, it falls in the category of like, 
the many, many things that I'm blind to, you know, like, like, right. let's get curious about, and, and, and not to feel a hundred pounds of shame, you know, about the things that I'm not doing right yet, or the ways that I'm not acting justly or loving mercy yet, but in a way that, you know, if I'm a follower of Christ, then I think I'm compelled to admit where it is that I'm blind, where it is that I can't see. I mean, I think that's yeah. part of what it means. Um, I think to follow the Christ that really was for setting the oppressed free and proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor and giving sight to yeah. blind eyes and all those things, those aren't just, that's not just rhetoric, you know, <laughs> those are actual, yep. like that's his, that's his mission. And yep. in order for us now, I'm, why am I preaching? This is your, this no, is your I conversation, but no, but I do think if we're going to do that and if it's not going to be rhetoric, then we need to all do the hard work of where, where am I blind? What am I not seeing? What don't I know? What implicit bias do I bring to the table in any number of things? Right. Yeah. And I think so for me, that's why your, your phrase choose life is actually very compelling. Um, and so thank yeah, you and for you know, that. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, you know, I, I, I think in general, um, this is, kind of going back into the blind spot idea is that, you know, part of what that implicit bias and recognizing those things and, and just being willing to even be curious, like you said, um, you know, where are my implicit biases? Well, I think that's what we're seeing happen, right? I mean, right now in the world is that as white evangelicals, um, because we haven't had people of color at the table, or even if we do, we don't listen to what they're saying. Um, we are, we have hit, we have done a great disservice, um, to this nation and to our brothers and sisters of color because, um, our implicit bias has just been kind of elevated in the groups of people that we're around. And, and we all see the gospel kind of in the same, like white way. Mm -hmm. Um, and so our viewpoint of what the gospel actually is will always be only partial, uh, until we have other people at the table. And I think that's, that's the call for us today. Oh, I agree. So well said. It will always be partial until we have more and more diversity at the table. And that's not a tokenism, you know, and that's like reality. Right. Like if you want a robust, right. holistic understanding of humanity and the gospel, I agree 100%. And the times that I have experienced um, like multicultural and intercultural faith expression. Mm -hmm. I felt that. I mean, I felt bigger, you know, like I can feel myself expanding in ways that um, I want more of, you know? Um, yes. And, and it just takes a little taste for you to realize, oh man, what, what more am I missing? <laughs> you know, there's yeah. so much more out there. Um, yes, than my exactly. little sliver of knowledge and my little sliver of experience, you know. Exactly. And because of our privilege, right, mm -hmm. um, I think that the real gospel um, first calls us as white people into what feels like bad news. Mm -hmm. um, it feels like bad news first. Uh, mm -hmm. In order for it to be good news for everyone, I think it has to first be uh, distasteful to those of us who are and have been privileged, yeah. um, our whole lives. Yeah. So I agree with that too. 
Um, and that gets back to the uncomfortable. Like, are we willing to sit with some of the uncomfortable realities that we're facing right now without um, yeah. brushing them away too quickly? You know, that's right. That's right. Man. Well, Gina, um, I'm going to put all these things on the show notes. Uh, all the things you mentioned, kind and Bethany's children's services and um, in the country we love and your Twitter handle. And your book, of course, which again, you guys, is called Separated by the Border, A Birth Mother, A Foster Mother, and a Migrant Child's 3,000-Mile Journey by Gina Thomas. But how else can we get in touch with you if people want to join your work or want to hire you for something or um, anything like that? How, how can we get a hold of you? Yeah, um, my website is ginathomas.com. It's G-E-N-A thomas.com. Um, and then I would just say, um, for those who are listening to this episode, right when it, uh, publishes, um, check out the hashtags. Don't look away, don't look away. And for every child, because we've got a campaign that we'll be running, um, this, this next week, uh, trying really hard to press back against those, um, inhumane policies that the administration is, is currently undergoing at the border. So, um, don't look away and for every child, I hope we'll, we'll find you, find you there. And I'll share this episode using those hashtags. So if you found this episode via Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, uh, just go to the original post and you can click on those hashtags to, to read everything else that's happening in that movement. Awesome. So don't Thank look away you. and for every child. Awesome. Um, Gina, last question. Is there anything you uh, that you hoped I would ask you that, that I failed to ask? Uh, no. Definitely not. This is great. I loved it. Um, Me too. I, I will say. I hope we in, can hang out in person sometime. Well, I would love that. I mean, we, we got to, once the world opens, opens back up again a little bit for travel, yeah. I mean, we have to find ourselves at similar events and conferences and stuff. Um, yeah. Do you ever get up north? Do you ever get up to Minnesota? Um, I think I, I did once. Um, so maybe okay. it's possible. Yeah. Well, let, let's do you, ever, do you ever get down to the South? Well, it, it depends, right? So Texas. Okay. Yes. Um, okay. I have a friend in North Carolina, though I haven't visited okay. her in a while, you know, so yes. Okay. Um, and anticipate heading down there more. Um, so I would love to love to see you and hang out. That would be so fun. Um, I what I was going to say, Gina is thank you for, your really amazing and rare combination of of succinct information and hard challenge with what is clearly a very gracious and generous posture that's what i experienced mm -hmm. when i talked to you today and i and i say it's rare because it is rare <laughs> mm. thank you so much yeah so that means a lot well thank you i mean you're doing really good work and i'm excited to keep keep following you so, and I hope I can help, yeah. help spread the word in any way that I can. So, okay, everybody, again, Separated by the Border by Gina Thomas. Um, through the sort of the third week of, second, third week of June, don't look away and for every child, check out those hashtags. And then check out the show notes uh, to get in touch with Gina on her website, ginathomas.com. And also, it's just at Gina Thomas on Twitter, right? It's Gina L. Thomas. Oh, okay. On Twitter. At Gina L. Yep. Thomas. Awesome. 
Okay. Well, Gina, you're doing great work again. Thank you for coming on this good word and um, you're the best. Thank you. So appreciate it. Hey friends, thanks so much for listening to this good word. If you love this podcast, there's three ways that you can support my work. One is by jumping on Patreon, patreon.com slash this good word. You can become a patron at various levels and get lots of good free stuff, including free tickets to any live events that I do, signed books and other stuff. The second way is to share your favorite episodes via Twitter and Facebook. Uh, email, however it is that you share content. Let some friends know that you love it. And then third is to go on iTunes and leave a rating or a review. So thanks so much, my friends. We are dust and breath. We are limited and limitless. We are human and holy, and we are in it together.